Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we are surrounded every day by stories of history, and we don't even know they are there. It's when you start asking a few questions that you find out, you know, the backstory behind all sorts of things. I remember learning about Shakespeare in high school and then realizing how many modern day stories were actually based on or inspired by his plays. That happens everywhere. For instance, take video games. Is there any history involved in some of the storylines that we see in video games? Yes, as a matter of fact, there is. And for one very popular game as well called Assassin's Creed. We're going to learn all about it now with the help of Johnny Thompson, philosopher and writer for Big Think. Well, Johnny, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. I thought Assassin's Creed was a video game. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's based on a, a real historical uh, group, really. In fact, the in fact the word assassin comes from this group. Um, it's uh, from an Arabic word, um, hashashin, um, who were an Islamic sect who were active between the 11th and the 13th centuries um, in the Middle East. Um, in fact, that label hashashin was almost certainly a a slur given to them by their enemies. You see, um, because it was said that members of the um, Hashashin sect would kind of get high on opium and, and hashish before an assassination. Um, the reason why that's a slur is that in Islam and, and in the Quran, um, any intoxicants of any kind are, are, are forbidden. So calling someone a Hashashin is, is kind of like calling them a junkie or a waster. And it's a, it's a really kind of like a big, a big insult in, oh. in the Islamic world. Um, it's almost certainly not true um, because the, uh, the, the, the assassins, the Nizari Ismaili, were essentially a very small kind of puritanical sect. And so they're very much not likely to be you know, high on hashish, really. Right. OK, but how do we still know about this group after like almost a thousand years? It must be quite legendary. Yeah, so the, I mean, the reason is because they they instilled a lot of fear in in their enemies. Really, I mean, there's two two factors to that. Really, is one is that um, their enemies wrote lots of stories about them. You really want to slander the people who are you know assassinating your your officials and and kind of manipulating you. And the other thing is there is um, somewhat somewhat like um, Christian Orientalism. Really, it's, it, this tendency uh, up until the 19th century of kind of Christian chroniclers to kind of make uh, these kind of like the Middle and the Far East very exotic or even kind of debauched and kind of like slightly strange. So a lot of the kind of popularity of the stories comes from that kind of that kind of inclination. Um, so actually, the wildest stories we have about them come from Marco Polo, and he had he had this um, he had this story about um, called the Old Man of the Mountain, which is a kind of colloquial way of of describing Hassan, who's the founder of this of this sect. And it was said that Hassan, the Old Man of the Mountain, would get all of his initiates kind of absolutely high. Off, off, off their rocket, really high as a kite, and he'd, he'd dope them with kind of hashish, opium, and these unknown exotic drugs. And then, when they were high, he would kind of uh, parade these beautiful damsels in front of them, and he'd reveal these fountains of milk and honey, and they'd be gifted this kind of like this paradise of women, wine, and, and music. 
And it was all very carefully choreographed to resemble what uh, Muhammad's depiction was of paradise in, in the Quran, you see, because uh, he wanted to kind of say, well, you know, this is a, a free sample of heaven. And if you if you join us, the assassins, then you'll get this after you die and stuff. So um, and when, when people came to, they they obviously fell fell in step with, with, with the assassins, really, um, because the, the assassins were a, an Islamic sect. They were well, mm-hmm. actually really a sect within a sect within a sect. Um, their official name was the, uh, Niz- the Nizarius Meili. So what did they and do, they were though? Shia. What were they known for? Well, they, so that because as Shia, they, they were kind of known for kind of two kind of major um, kind of like ways of operating, really. The first way is that they kind of infiltrated court life and uh, diplomatic missions to try and manipulate and cajole leaders, particularly of the Seljuk Empire, who were who were Sunni. And um, they were Shia. You see, so they were trying to um, control and uh, kind of deter them from invading their lands. Um, so, for example, in, in, the, in the 1090s, the Nizari successfully managed to kind of have one of plant one of their own, um, a man called Kiwam, in as the vizier of, to Prince Mahmud of the Seljuk Empire. And uh, you know, he whispered in the prince's ear. And a, as a result, the, the Seljuk army was kind of persuaded from marching on the assassin's uh, mountain stronghold because they all they all lived in mountains, you see, uh, in mountain strongholds and castles. Um, Alamut was their capital. And, and the second way that they operated was, yeah, yeah they, they, they murdered people. They were really good at murdering people. Um, we don't know how, how many they actually killed because they didn't keep many records themselves. But the fact that ev- that they were a lot of murders were ascribed to them shows at very at the very least how how feared they were. So the way they would operate often would be kind of disguise themselves as a, as a monk or a beggar or a servant or or, or a soldier, and, and they would kill in a very public um, arena, in a very public way. So there's one example where they um, one of the assassins was hiding outside a mosque and he killed a Seljuk general. Uh, with a knife in the in 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 the stomach, and of course you know Ooh. bleeding out and crying, and it was it, it was a very public kind of display of you know do not mess with us, otherwise this will happen to you. Um, I mean we'd probably call it guerrilla tactics today, or, or or terrorism, depending on on your kind of like your your lens, really. Right. Um, and so yeah, they ca- they carried on this way for um, about, about two centuries, and people were kind of scared of them. And um, there was Saladin was was a major a major person who kind of took offence at this. He was this Muslim general who was leading a campaign against um, the Christian Crusaders trying to recapture Jerusalem. And the assassin sent operatives to him um, twice and failed because he he had been kind of walking through their lands. They and they didn't really like this. And he was kind of rampaging through their lands really. And so Saladin turned his wrath on them and he sieged their mountain fortress for for a week. Um, and one of those mysteries of history, we don't know why to this date, why Saladin lifted the siege. Um, it, something happened. It might have been a knife on the pillow or something like, you know, mafia kind of like thing, or it might have been an agreement. But what we do know is that Saladin after this massively beefed up his security. So he would um, he slept in a, in a wooden tower, a wooden fortress that he had taken down and erected everywhere he slept. So he was obviously kind of very like fearful of of, of this this cult, this, this sect. So what happened to um, him? Well, eventually they kind of like annoyed the wrong people, actually. So um, <laughs> bound to happen, and, and, really, like, when you think about yeah, it. Right? Yeah, I mean, they were slightly kind of like de- um, diminishing anyway, really. So they only had so Hassan was their first leader. He was he was great, and he kind of like he, he got a lot of their fortunes. And then they had another one called Sinan. But after that, they were kind of dwindling. But they um, by the 13th century, in 13th century Eurasia, the biggest player is is the Mongols or other Mongols. Um, and so the order tried to intimidate them um, with assassins and, and and threats. But you you, d- you don't really mess with the Mongols in the 13th century. And the Mongols, Mongols essentially war, had, had been waging war against these massive empires across Eurasia. They'd beaten the Chinese and they'd beaten some other Central European um, empires. So when they came to these kind of mountain strongholds, they kind of knew exactly what to do. They actually had gunpowder from China. So they made kind of like fast work of these mountain strongholds and, and they essentially destroyed all of them. So within, I think, four years, um, they kind of destroyed all of the um, 
you know, the assassin strongholds. But I mean, the, the, the only reason we really know them um, is because they they were the, the Christian chroniclers at the time kind of like also portrayed them as being these kind of the enemy number one, really, this kind of like this fearful, uh, shadowy people who would assassinate you, really. Johnny, you know what's amazing about these stories that you tell us is that, you know, we go around every day. There's all sorts of things that we experience or we see or we play these video games and we don't realize Mm. that there's all these backstories to everything, right? Like, how do you find out these stories? Oh, well, well, this this one was a bit of a labor of love, really, to be honest, because um, my uncle uh, used to read lots of history books and he'd kind of tell all of us around the table about these kind of stories. And, of course, this one, when he told it, was very sensationalist and kind of like extravagant. Of course. When when you actually research it, it's not as sensationalist, (laughs) but it's, you know, it's no less interesting and yeah i think you know history is definitely uh wilder than fiction in some respects and this one is is definitely an example of that i think it certainly <laughs> is johnny thanks so much for being with us no no thanks for having me on again that's johnny thompson philosopher and writer for big think this is mornings with simmy I love talking baby names, but I also love talking to our Scott Shen. So I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet in 2024. So Happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year, Simmy. How are you? I'm so good. Thank you for asking. Okay, we're talking baby names. I love this topic. Yeah, me too. My favorite part of having kids. I mean, there's a million things that I love about having kids, but the whole uh, making babies pregnancy, that part, the baby naming was the funnest for me. You get to be creative. You get to like, uh, and as a a dad, it's it's like. It's also very hard. It's very hard. See, I didn't find that. I was like, this is enjoyable. I had so many names that I thought would work. And it was like, man, any of these are going to be fun. But if you're a type of person who doesn't uh, necessarily navigate having a whole bunch of options, well, then yes, it can be really, really difficult. So what are the trends for 2024? Okay, yeah. So number one uh, trend is neo-Western names. And this has been growing over the last couple of years, but it's it's big for 2024. What does that mean? Neo-Western, think uh, the TV show Yellowstone. Okay, so names on the, on the neo-Western list are like Dutton, like the Duttons from the course, Yellowstone yes. TV show, making their last name the first name Casey is a name on there Ethan but spelled E-I-T-H-A-N rip? rip has been on the list but it's <laughs> not for 2024 it has oh. been for sure um, other names like Kaizen and Zen are on there. You know, I don't know if there's this like uh, like neo-Western. They're not a like classic Western, but they're new sort of, I don't know. Uh, they're, call- this, they're calling it neo-Western and these they're saying they're, they're popular on TV shows. We saw this when a big show comes out, like when Game right. of Thrones was out, all, like Khaleesi was a popular name. Oh boy. I, I wonder if the trend is also, I thought it was more towards old fashioned names. So there is that as well, uh, except in this circumstance, they're calling them adult names instead of saying old fashioned okay. names. Names like Duncan, Heath, and Lars. Oh, I went to school with a couple of Lars. Yeah, yeah, I do know a Lars, but they're saying this is a shift. Parents seek names that convey maturity and sophistication without relying solely on vintage names, right? Vintage old-fashioned names, names like okay. uh, Henry or George, uh, the old-fashioned great sort names. of names. I think they're great names too, but instead, I think it as a way to differentiate from that, you know, five or six year ago naming trend, they're calling these adult names. Okay. Uh, there's also short and punchy names. So I really like one syllable names, uh, but these are in that Theo, Jay, Max, names like that, that are just kind of have a short and quick punch. And also, uh, this should not come as a surprise to anybody, even though I hate it, AI naming, Why like do you AI hate- 
Why do you hate that? Because it's just, and I, I'll say, I don't mean AI as in like artificial intelligence. It's like having AI at the like end Kai of the, yes, or, yes. Why? Uh, why I do don't, you hate that? Why do you feel so strongly about this? It just has this like uh, put AI on the end of something and and it makes it a name, which I don't really agree with. You know? No, see, I think you're wrong, Scott. <laughs> because a lot of these names, I was just looking at the list, like names like Makai, for instance, that's Hawaiian. That means to the ocean. That means face the ocean. So a okay. lot of these names, like actually, what does Zakai? I don't know what that means. Jack-i, I'm just saying some of those Ozi, names are are Scott inspired I. by elsewhere. I don't know. <laughs> those, that, those are just dumb, That's right? I'm. Like there is some of that. There is some of that. Right. And then this is like my this trend has been around for a long time. Gender inclusive names. I like to me. The names that I picked for my kid, I was like, I want a name that works for a boy or a girl or whatever gender they decide to be. I want a name that could, you know, like. Cover all the bases. You got it. Like Ryan, I think is a beautiful name for a boy or a girl. Jordan. uh, I have a friend who has a daughter named Scotty. You know, I love that. Totally. I think that's great. That's still big. Okay. I like all these. Yeah. I like all of these trends. I like. Also, I love some of these names that like Dorothea. I saw that on the list too. Guinevere. Like, I just, I think that it's like you're, you're, uh, Matilda is fine, but Dorothea is like unnecessarily complicating it. I don't think so. My mother-in-law's name, uh, she's passed away now, but old Newfoundland, old Newfoundland name, Alfreda. I love that name. I like it because you would call her Alfie. I like that. Sure, sure. But I'm just saying Alfreda as a name is like Dorothea. It's a very, like an older name, but I love that. But Dorothy is a name. And then you're just, it's like the adding the AI onto the end of something. Like Jack, you make it Jack-Eye. Zach, you make it Zach-Eye. But that's that's on the list. Jack-Eye is on the list. No, no, no. What, like one person named their kid that? Well, I I mean, it's popular enough for people to get it onto the list. You know, and like Dorothy is a beautiful name, but you just are adding the E-A, Dorothea. You know? I like Dorothea. You call her Thea for short. Thea, you call yeah. Her Dot. Dot. See, Those but are you could cute. you could call her Dot if her name was just Dorothy. But again, what's the best part about this is it doesn't matter what I think, whatever anyone else thinks. That's what they're allowed to do, and it's really cool to sort of have like a like a unique name that you like. That's the most right. important thing. Also, the other important thing is your Scott and I love to talk about lists. Yeah, absolutely. What well, this is one of my favorite things for 2024. Uh, do you make New Year's resolutions? No, although I think it's only natural that we want to. I know people are very like anti New Year's resolution, but I think when you turn the calendar over and you're looking to the year ahead and you're thinking about the year ahead, you you just automatically think there's certain things that I want to do this year and you just kind of make those resolutions. Yeah, we have there's times throughout our lives where it just feels like this is a good time to sort of start something new. Uh, well, for 2024, New Year's resolutions are out. Making in and out lists of what's in and out for 2024 is in. So maybe you've seen this on social media that people are posting lists of like it. it we used to read this in magazines, hot or not list. It's Love kind it. of like that. There's in those. and out list. So for example, out for 2024, drinking too much alcohol. In for 2024, drinking more water. So those are like that's an example. Do out- we need that to be fashionable in order to do that? Well, you don't need it, but I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of fun. Is that okay? Are you putting that on your list? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Try to drink less booze, more water. All right. I'll have to remind him of that. I'll have to remind him of that th- I do periodically need those throughout the year. Yes. This is Mornings with Simi. All right. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And Vaughn, I have a feeling as soon as we're finished talking to you, what a lot of people are going to be doing. 
Yes, they're going to be checking their property assessment. The BC Assessment Authority began posting the latest assessments for property on the weekend. I think Saturday, BC Assessment website. You can go and click there, enter your address, and find out what your assessment is. As of today, they'll also be posting comparative data, uh, what it was last year, how much the increases are in your region. So... It's all part of the annual kind of what's going to happen to my property taxes, although as mayors and councillors quickly point out, just because your assessment went up doesn't necessarily mean your property taxes are going to go up that much. It might be more, it might be less. It depends in part on what the council's done about the local budget and your mill rate. So all of that is relevant, uh, but it is the day when people can start looking it up and you'll find out. In my case, uh, well, we've been told, Simi, the jump won't be as great as last year. Last year, it averaged 12%, which was a lot. Uh, told that the market has cooled, uh, prices have cooled, and uh, it'll be probably less than 2%. In my case, it was 1.5%, uh, which is certainly less uh, alarming or reassuring, depending on your economic outlook, than last year. Okay. So yeah, that, like how does it work? I think a lot of people don't realize that just because it goes up one year, it actually takes like a three-year average, I think, in most cases, right? Yeah. And they look at comparable properties in your neighborhood. And and one of the things that people do is, you know, you have the right to appeal. Most people accept their assessment, but some people appeal because they go, uh, you based all this on one outlier in my neighborhood, right? And, it, and it, it isn't fair and it isn't reasonable. And people win these appeals sometimes. They go to the assessment authority. You don't need a lawyer. You can do it yourself. And you can argue that the jump in your assessment is unfair. Uh, it does work. You can do that. Um, the other thing that happens and usually happens within a day or two of the day they post the assessment, Simi, is what's going to happen with a homeowner grant. Uh, usually, the provincial government announces the grant will increase in lockstep with whatever the average provincial increase in assessments was. And that is because the way the homeowner grant works, the government keeps it at a level where most people get it. 92% of homeowners get it. The New Democrats have followed that. That's been the practice in BC since WAC Bennett invented the grant. In 1957, the New Democrats have uh, been under pressure to stop giving the homeowner grant to people who don't need it, who have you know, very valuable properties. The, the qualifying threshold is broke $2 million last year. So, you know, the critics have a point, but Simi, I don't think the government's going to change the threshold in an election year. So I think we'll probably hear fairly soon, maybe even later today, that the grant will be increasing again or the qualifying, the qualifying threshold for the grant. The grant doesn't change. It's $570. And Simi, <clears throat> another misunderstanding is it's not an actual grant. You don't get $570 from the provincial government in the form of a grant. What they do is deduct that much from your property taxes. It's a paper transaction, an ingenious one invented by W.A.C. Bennett because people, you know, it's sort of, you sort of feel like you're getting something. 
Yeah, that's you're so true. Relief from your, yeah, you're getting relief from your property taxes, but you're not actually getting cash in the bank. Huh. Okay. That's what people have to keep in mind. A lot of them, though, with these prices, Vaughn, like I feel like for the homeowner's grant is, a, is in the rearview mirror for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Um, and I think, you know, it, the, the, the calculation, as I said, is of, of your assessment is based on what's happening in your neighborhood, which it should. Right. The, the size of your own property. So if you have an unusually large property or an unusually large house, it's going to vary. Uh, but the other thing is, it's as of July of last year. And the way the real estate market moves in British Columbia, one of the things that's, as you say, your rearview mirror aspect is <clears throat> this is where things stood last July. Exactly. The real estate market has been bouncing around in B.C., uh, that's not necessarily where things are going to stand, that you're going to feel they stand in the moment. And we're entering into a period, I would say, of <clears throat> really it's questionable what is actually going to happen to property values. So one of the things that drives it is the market. But the other thing that drives assessments is a thing called highest and best use. So a single family home that is in a single family neighborhood and has been there for years is assessed compared to other single family homes in that neighborhood. But the province has just essentially abandoned the concept of single family neighborhoods. They've said that single family uh, zoning is void and that municipalities have to approve uh, multiple units on single-family lots, up to six units, depending on the size of the lot. And they've also said that if your single-family home is near a transit station or a bus loop, uh, the, the local government can approve 20-story condo towers in that area. So when all of this went through the legislature in the fall, the opposition was saying, what's this going to do to the concept of highest best use? And the New Democrats insisted, oh, no, 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 we've, we've done our analysis and uh, there are other factors and it isn't going to mean that you're suddenly your single family home is going to be worth a six uh, unit multiplex. Well, the government's own economic analysis, which we got after the legislation passed, Simi, it suggests there will be an impact on assessed values. Of course there will be properties in your neighborhood, even if you just sit in your single family home and watch what happens, uh, your neighbor across the street might decide to tear his place down and uh, build four units. Well, that's going to create an assessed value yeah. in your neighborhood that's going to work its way through. So this won't necessarily happen overnight, but I think we're into a period of fluctuating assessments that will affect the housing market. It will affect the value of your home. If you own your own place, you go, well, the value is not going to go down and it might well go up. Oh, something, something else for us to watch out for, too. All right, we're back talking with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And, you know, I've been wondering about this, Vaughn. I mean, we haven't talked about it in a while, but what is going on with the Royal BC Museum? Well, uh, they're in the middle of a dialogue with British Columbia over the future of the museum. It's not a rush job. The, the dialogue began uh, after uh, last year, after the John Horgan government 
abandoned its plan for a $1 billion makeover of the museum and kind of began reversing direction. And the reversing of direction continued in the, the year just passed as well. Um, but there's a dialogue going on. So if you went to the Royal BC Museum before Christmas, you found there were little kiosks in the entranceway and a questionnaire, and they were asking you uh, important questions like, uh, how should the museum connect to the rest of British Columbia better? And should we really go ahead and replace this seismically unsafe building? And how do we uh, reconcile with indigenous people and so forth? The kiosks uh, give way to community dialogues starting this month and continuing through communities in British Columbia, uh, 32 public meetings, I think, plus online. And at the end of it, Simi, there will be a report to British Columbians about what British Columbians said about the future of the museum. Uh, that uh, is due later this year, although I think given how controversial this exercise has been in the past, Simi, uh, the New Democrats would be very happy if nothing much came forward before the election, because <laughs> the last thing they want to do is to reopen an issue which was one of the big debacles of the John Horgan time in office. Horgan, to his credit, put a stop to it, but for about a month, it was a subject of furious controversy. Okay, so we've gone from having this brand new museum, a very expensive brand new museum being built, to slow walking any kind of discussion, yes. even about what is happening with the museum. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the plan was notorious. It was a billion dollars and they were going to close the museum, which is one of the main attractions in Victoria. They were going to close it for eight years. Uh, and, and neither part of that uh, washed. And Horgan, yeah, it's interesting. Horgan announced it and a month later he killed it. And a month after that, he announced he was stepping down as premier. And I think it's one of the things that he lost control of in his last few months as premier because he was dealing with health issues and he was thinking about retirement. And really, uh, as I said, it's the sort of thing that a more stubborn government would have stuck with. Horgan, to his credit, stopped it. But it left all the outstanding issues. One of them is that the building is sure. old and not all that safe seismically. And the second one is the view that... Uh, you know, the original idea was that it needed to be decolonized. That was the, the language. And I think that was the language that generated the most controversy because the most, one of the most popular exhibits in the museum, other than the mammoth, was Old Town. And uh, Old Town was closed. Two years ago, it had been closed, effective December 31st, and they were busy dismantling it already. They've, in addition to turning around on the billion-dollar makeover plan and the eight-year closure, they've also reopened Old Town. If you go there now, bunches of it, significant parts of it are still there, and they don't use the D word, decolonizing anymore. They are still determined to reconcile with Indigenous people, but not at the expense of everybody else's history. So I think that's why they're proceeding cautiously, much right. more cautiously. I, I, the word they've I, also yeah sorry go ahead I was gonna say you're right about the word right you're, I think that decolonized word really got to people I don't understand why they felt necessary to use it they could have just said we're gonna modernize the museum and people went oh okay yeah sure modernize yeah. the museum and that's now the language they use and seismic upgrading of but, course you know the other thing is the basic the the basic key in my view 
to getting to the public on this is, if you say we're going to add to the exhibits in the museum and add to the histories we tell, I think most people go, great, more history the better in the museum. Should reflect our history. But it got captured by the, the language that basically we have to stamp something out here. We have to stamp out the colonial legacy. We have to get rid of all this evidence of, you know, what the European settlers did when they came here. And I think that was politically a mistake, but I think it also deeply offended the public who were going, we're closing the museum for eight years and a billion dollars to wipe out a whole bunch of our history. Like they lost control of the message around that. And I think that's why they've had to embark much more cautiously on a new project. The new CEO, she's only an acting CEO, Tracy Drake, uh, says, you know, nothing is off the table, but the dialogue continues. As you will know, Simi, the previous CEO, quit. Uh, Alicia Dubois, she said she quit because the plan she was hired to implement, the decolonizing one, was abandoned. So she quit. Can't blame her for that. Uh, She was hired uh, and took the job on good faith, thinking she was going to implement this big plan. The government backed away politically. And whatever they do this year in terms of public feedback, Simi, I don't think they will announce their plans for the future of the Royal BC Museum before election day, because whatever they do is still going to be expensive and it will probably still be controversial. That is very true. Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I know your bills haven't come in yet for the month of December, which I know in some cases they're probably a little bit more than you thought they were going to be. But the question is, are you fiscally ready for the new year? Do you know what's going to cost you more or maybe less in 2024? We have someone to help us out with that this morning, actually. It's Daniel Rogozinski, who's a Master of Accounting co-director at the University of Waterloo. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. I'm trying not to think too much about my finances, but you're going to help us with that this morning, right? For sure. Anything you need to know, let's let's try to see if we can uh, get through it. Okay, let's do that. Are there any, any things that are good for us, Daniel, this year, like things that are going to make us uh, save a little bit of money this year that we need to know about? Well, there's a natural process every January 1st. There's a um, CRA, what they do is they have to index our, our tax brackets and our credits and our deductions. So, uh, and what those allow us to do is basically, you know, they're going up by 4.7% on January 1st. So what that means is if, if you make 4.7% more income this year, you wouldn't have to pay any more tax, theoretically, because, uh, you know, they've adjusted those for inflation. So those, that natural indexation will allow you to kind of go ahead and, and, and earn more money without paying more tax. So that, that's, that's one good thing that you can um, say that's going to be a natural byproduct of the of the tax system in Canada. Other than that, it's a pretty quiet year in terms of um, personal tax changes for for people like you and me. It really isn't sort of a you know major changes, major um, elements of the tax system are changing this year. They did a lot of cleaning up of, of a lot of the rules and and a lot of technical changes and a lot of big company things. But for individuals like you and me, not not a lot of things there. There's a couple of um, negative elements that I'm sure you probably want to ask about at some point yes. in time, but, but uh, you know, let's, let's get to those, but pretty quiet year in terms of the, you know, sort of the benefits, let's say, of, uh, in the tax system. Okay, so the things that we need to know about, I think high on this list has to do with the short-term rental deductions. What's up with this? 
So if you're if you're you know if you're renting out your place uh, short term rental you know B R B you know those Airbnb and things like that you have to be aware that if your area you know basically has rules against that and you're doing it anyway um, you know the federal government's now put in rules that say you can't deduct the expenses related to that property so now theoretically you have to report the income but not the deduction so that would cost you more tax now now obviously you have to know that and you have to report it accordingly but just you know be aware that you know if you're if your municipality or province says you can't, uh, you you know, you shouldn't be doing these short-term rentals, um, and you do it anyway, or you're doing something sort of quietly under the table, um, you're supposed to report that income on your tax return. That's, you know, you're supposed to report all of your income on your tax return, and you're allowed to normally deduct the related expenses to, you know, have a net number that you pay tax on. But, you know, the problem is the federal government's trying to look at this and say, you know, we, we want to basically have that short-term rental. We want the that out into the into the uh, you know the housing market and uh, you know promote that people having those long term housing situations as opposed to these short term rentals. So they they introduce these rules that say that uh, you you can't deduct those expenses. So it's a bit of a penalty if you're doing that uh, against the quote unquote local rules. Now I, I think the other thing I would say something important to remember is um, you know they they estimate there's only twenty thousand homes that that this would free up um, long term housing for. And, you know, we're talking about adding 3.5 million homes necessary in the next 10 years. So so it's less than 1% um, impact on the housing market in terms of projections for the next 10 years. So I'm not sure it really is going to do much in terms of, quote-unquote, quote unquote, helping us with our, right. you know, our housing crisis and our cost of housing. Okay, so there's that, but the people do need to know about that one. But also, what is with these exemptions for mental health services? Uh, so what happens with is, is the HSC in your in your province GST, um, you know that's charged on services, goods and services. And normally, what happens if you went to you know to a mental health professional, psychotherapy, let's say, you would normally have to pay a hundred dollars plus thirteen percent in Ontario, you know five percent GST in, in in British Columbia. And what you would see is basically that 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 would. It, uh, increase your cost. And what the federal government says is, you know, we really, we really want to support mental health. And, 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 you know, I think kudos to them to saying, you know what, you know, if we can make it more affordable, maybe more people can do it. Um, so they've removed the HST on, on that sort of um, service that's provided for people in terms of getting mental health. Now, again, the other problem is, is still, you know, people are waiting 6, 12, 18 months from what I hear in terms of getting, yeah. you know, mental health. You still, you're still stuck with, uh, great, it's cheaper for me, but I can't get anybody to give it to me. So there is a lot of this supply and demand imbalance I like to talk about a lot these days is, is, you know, they're trying to tweak the tax systems, but, you know, there's a lot of other things that need to go on to make it really beneficial to the people who really need these services. So true. Okay, that's important to know about, but also the Canada Pension Plan uh, contribution enhancement. This is going to impact quite a few people. I'm not sure we fully understand what's going on here. Yeah, so that that was something in 2019. The federal government, the provinces, they sat down and said, you know, we want to make sure that you know people when they retire, they can have, you know kind of live with dignity, and and so we need to force them to save for their retirement a little bit more as opposed to you know people doing it on their own. And what they've done is they introduced two enhancements or two increases to the CPP plan. The first one happened in 2019. It's been happening since then every year. Um, you know, about 100 to 150 dollars, depending on the year. Um, we're having to pay more, and our employers are doing that too. So if you're you know, if you're employed, you're basically your your company is doing Doing the same thing. So that's sort of money going into your retirement. And what happened is starting, you know, today or yesterday, sorry, um, they've had a second tier, which is basically, again, for people who are making between 68-ish and $73,000, they're, they're sticking on another 4% increase of that as, as a supplemental enhancement. Um, all this is great in terms of, you know, saving for, you know,
know, your retirement. Now, if you're in retirement now, this doesn't change anything for you. You're going to be basically, um, you know, still getting the same pension system. This is really meant for people who are going to retire 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, which, you know, again, it's great that, you know, we're helping to save for retirement in the future, but it's still going to cost you and me, um, if you're making more than $73,000, um, it's going to cost you about 300 bucks more a year um, this year. So that is money coming out of your pocket today that you can't pay for your groceries right. or your, your rent. So it is one of those things, you know, you know, you're, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, you know, it's great to save for retirement, but you know, you got to live in the here and now. So, you know, it's, it is a, a cost now um, for the future benefit. And, you know. Okay. That's important to note that when you see those changes on your paycheck, right? When they start coming sure. in in January, uh, yeah. what, what is the alternative minimum tax rate? What does that mean? So when, when you um, are someone who is making, and again, what the government has said is we really want to go after people who are making, you know, the top 1%, and that's that's what this is going to affect, is basically people making more than roughly $173,000 in a year, and they're taking advantage of things like a capital gains exemption or large charitable donations or stock options, all three of which are, you know, politically and, and optically, you read the paper and say, oh, look at these people are making all this money, not paying any tax. So the federal government really doesn't like that. So what they did was they said, we're going to make these changes to the alternative minimum tax and the goal here is to make sure that if you if you make a lot of money and you don't pay any tax the federal government doesn't like that so what they've done is change the system to make it so it's going to affect way fewer people so only the top one percent but if it, if, it, if these people have these large capital gains when they sell shares or when they have a stock option um, that you know element in terms of you know you exercise your stock options uh, again very few people are affected here um, and what will happen is if you're going to have to pay this extra tax that normally it would you know you take advantage of these deductions in the system, you won't have to pay any tax. But because of this alternative minimum tax, it's done in the background on your tax return. Most people use these electronic uh, software now. Right. Um, it's all done in the background. You never see it. But what will happen is it's automatically doing this parallel calculation in the background. And if, if you make more than $173,000, um, it might come back and say, hey, you know what, you might think you're paying no tax, but you're going to have to pay this additional altern- uh, alternative minimum tax this year. Now, the good thing is if it's just a one-time bump in your income because, you, let's say, you know, you're, you sold your rental property or you sold your cottage and you had to pay tax on that, if it's a one-time thing, there is a provision to recover that over the following seven years if you don't have that sort of income again. So there is, it is nice that it's recoverable, but it still is something that you think, you know, hey, I'm taking advantage of um, benefits right. in the system that, that are there, and then I, I get caught with this surprise tax bill. And we just want to be sure that, you know, it's one of those things you just want to be aware of when you're, you know, yes. you're making a, a good chunk of money in a year. You might not be as uh, sort of tax um, tax-saving situation as you thought you were. Okay, these are all good. I made notes on all of them. Daniel, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us this well. morning. You're welcome. Have a good morning and you, see you later. You appreciate, I appreciate that. That's Daniel Rogozinski, who's a Master of Accounting co-director at the University of Waterloo, which is some things that you need to flag financially for 2024. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a good time to talk about getting things done, making those lists. Sure, that's all easy, but how do you actually do the things on that list? That's what we're talking to Scott Shantz about this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I have been described as a doer. Yes, I was going to say, <laughs> I feel like what, what I'm talking about this morning, what we're discussing, does not necessarily apply to you, Simi. Well, I, have, and, I, I procrastinate at times. Okay, and yeah, I want to talk about procrastination because I would say that you probably are, uh, procrastination is much less than an issue for you and people like you than it is for me and people like me. I would say when I was younger, I was a big time procrastinator. Mm-hmm. But when you are a full time working mother of two young children, which at one time I was, 
I feel like that was a luxury I couldn't afford yeah, to procrastinate. Yeah, absolutely. And the feeling that I get from getting stuff done outweighs the feeling of sitting around doing nothing. Yeah, that that is for sure true. And it's interesting that you talk about how you learned to do that and how you changed that because for a lot of people, it's not that easy. And like I can do it, but it's, it's harder for me than I think it is for a lot of people in my life. And so I wanted to know more, you know, it's new year, the lists, the getting things done, everything. So I spoke to Dr. Joseph Ferrari. He's a professor of psychology at DePaul University and the author of Still Procrastinating. He's considered one of the world's leading procrastination experts. And I wanted to get a better understanding of all of thing, all these things. And I started just by asking him like straight up, what is procrastination? What is procrastination? Well, it might be easier to look at what it's not. It's not the same as waiting, postponing, delaying, uh, uh, just holding off on doing something. In most of those cases, you're actively doing something. With procrastination, you're not doing, and it's an active avoidance strategy. It's a strategy that people will use that's self-handicapping, that's maladaptive, that doesn't help people reach their goals. And it's it's intentional. It leads to... uh, arousal, if you would, in, for, in that the person is anxious and uh, scared about, you know, not doing it. They're worrying about not meeting this deadline. So it's not the same as delaying. Hmm. Uh, and recently, a, a colleague was saying, you know, if I'm on an airplane, <clears throat> my flight is four hours delayed in taking off. I arrive late, but did I procrastinate? No, I was delayed. So sometimes delay is not in our control. It's a learned tendency. You're not born a procrastinator. There's no gene that makes you a procrastinator. You you learn it. Well, where do you learn? Like most things, you learn it from the house, in the home, where you grew up. You're not born procrastinator. That means you can change. That means you can become someone different. And with the new year, change. You mentioned that when I ask what procrastination is and we t- sort of talk about the difference between that and delay and stuff is you say that it's intentional. If it's intentional and I know that it's harming me, why can't I stop doing it? Because it becomes a socially accepted habit that our society says that that's okay. 20% of adults, men and women, 20% are chronic procrastinators. Mm. That means they do this at home, at school, at work, in relationships. That's higher than depression, phobia, alcoholism, substance abuse. And yet all of those are serious. Those are real important problems. We don't take procrastination as cultures seriously. We don't see it as a problem. Oh, the person's lazy. Oh, the person is just doesn't know how to manage their time. And it's got nothing to do with those things. So I have these these few areas, but if I'm able to not procrastinate in other areas and I'm not a procrastinator, why can't I get a hold of this one issue? Because the task is usually unpleasant. Yes. All right, a task avoidance. I don't like paying bills. My God, it's every month I've got these things that keep popping up and, and people want my money. And what am I really getting for it? Oh, God, look, it's higher now than it was a year ago. And So it's an unpleasant task. And we don't like things that are unpleasant as human beings. We like things that are pleasurable, enjoyable. Um, some people 
claim that procrastination is solely the only, uh, a what we call a self-regulation failure problem. In other words, I can't regulate what I, my good things with the bad things. I have this inability to regulate uh, myself. I think that's true, but I don't think that's the only reason why people procrastinate. They procrastinate because tasks are unpleasant. Procrastinate is a very social conscious. Hmm. They, they are very concerned what others think about them. See, you know, we've, okay. you've heard of the concept in psychology, self-esteem. That's yes. how I feel about myself. Well, procrastinators have that, but they also have social esteem that we call in social psych, how others view me. So circling back to what I was saying, I'd rather you think of me as someone is lacking effort than lacking ability. Hmm. Now, let me talk about what I mean. Yeah. Uh, these are basic concepts in psychology, social psychology. Lacking effort means I didn't try. And that's not a, that's not a positive you know, uh, uh, image I'm giving off. But I'd rather you think I didn't try than I don't have the ability that I just sure. like that. Because lacking the ability, no matter how much I try, I ain't going to be able to do it right? Procrastinators are great external bl uh, bl blamers, excuse makers, we call it in psychology. Sure. They always have a reason. These aren't stupid people, very smart. And they're very people oriented. That's why they're very concerned about what others think about them. They're just not dependable. So what can we do about it? Okay. First of all, everybody wants the cures. I focus a lot on the causes and the mm. consequences because I would do lots of these kinds of interviews and reporters would always focus on the time management angle. Mm -hmm. Well, let's clear that up. Time management techniques don't work. That's a misnomer. We don't manage time. We manage ourselves. Mm. So going back to your question, what can I do? Start managing yourself. Look, there's an expression. You can't control the wind, but you can adjust your sails. And the Japanese okay. like to say, if there's no wind, row. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So in other words, you can't control what life gives at you, but you can control the way you deal with it. And so what we say to people is make small, observable, specific simple behavioral goals. That's Dr. Joseph Ferrari. He is the author of Still Procrastinating. Make achievable goals, Simmy. I think I can do that. I'm going to try it. Me, I have a couple goals this year. All I right. think you're going to do better at it than I am. <laughs> we'll see about that. Thank you for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simmy. You might find something different the next time you go to see your doctor. The doctor may want to talk to you about your alcohol consumption and ask you more questions than they've ever asked before. And what you thought was okay in terms of how many drinks you were having may no longer be okay. And that is because as of yesterday, there are new guidelines that advocate for more routine discussions between healthcare professionals and patients regarding alcohol consumption. So how is this going to work? What are you going to be asked? And most importantly, why are they asking you these questions? Well, Dr. Jurgen Rem is with us, a senior scientist at Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health and co-chair of the Guideline Writing Committee that worked on these new guidelines. Dr. Rem, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So how is this going to work? What might we be asked by our doctor? 
Well, the first question, uh, I mean, it will not be a lot of questions, by the way. Right now, no questions are asked, and we try to change that. And the first questions would be something like, would it be all right to talk about your relationship with alcohol? And if they agree, uh, there would be one question. In the past year, how often have you had more than four drinks if you're a female or if you're a male, five drinks on any one occasion. And if you uh, say, okay, X or Y, some number uh, more than uh, uh, a positive number, not zero, then there would be two or three more questions. But anyway, overall, the doctor will just ask about alcohol and uh, start the conversation. That's the most important. Okay. Was it difficult coming up with these guidelines? Because I guess this can be a bit of a tricky, sensitive subject for people. It was difficult to come up with those guidelines because we screened the evidence from all over the world. It was a committee of 40 people, and we had about uh, two and a half years of working. We screened the literature, we looked into the evidence, and then we looked into the practice in Canada, and the practice in Canada proved to be in a way that, A, there was not sufficient advice for people in need of that advice, and B, sometimes uh, the wrong medication was given. So the guidelines also contain advice about what not to advise when you have problems with drinking alcohol. Right. So Dr. Rem, is the challenge here as well, getting this message out to doctors and encouraging them to do this with their patients? Yes. It's basically a wall of silence from both sides, or it has been. The doctors have not been routinely asking, well, my patients may feel a little bit uneasy about that. They may not like these questions. And the patients, even if they had problems with alcohol, didn't dare ask for help for any alcohol problems because they were uh, also having fears about being stigmatized. So the situation basically means that a lot of people who were in need of help didn't, for some reason, not end up getting this help. And that is from both sides. And that's what we are trying to change. Okay, so what is within the parameters of, of alcohol consumption that is okay for people? Uh, what is within the parameter of alcohol consumption that is okay depends on the goals which you have. Uh, basically, uh, our guidelines are clinical guidelines for alcohol use disorders. Uh, if you have, al uh, and they are to avoid alcohol use disorders, to prevent alcohol use disorders. What is okay within those limits, which are way higher than the general guidance for alcohol drinking, is a different problem. Let me give you one example. If you drink uh, one drink a day, for example, you are at an increased risk for breast cancer. 
But if you drink one glass a day, you're not at an increased risk for alcohol use disorders. So it depends on what do you want to avoid, what overall risks would you like to take. So where did this come from then, Dr. Rem? Is there a growing awareness then that perhaps the healthcare system needs to talk more about alcohol consumption? Absolutely. That is clear. And unfortunately, most of the Canadians do not know the risks. What we want to have is an informed society. We want people who know the risks, and if they're willing to take those risks, that is their decision. But if you don't know the risk, it's a problem. So we have to talk more about risks to alcohol to allow the people to actually do their own choices. Is there frustration at all for doctors in this as well, in that, you know, perhaps patients are not always going to tell them the truth when it comes to their alcohol consumption, so it's hard to give them the right advice on this. That is uh, unfortunately true as well. A doctor is already a very difficult job, and we try to give sound advice how to ease into that, but by all means, we will not, with those guidelines, we hope to change behaviors. Behaviors on the side of patients, behaviors on the side of doctors. And we also hope to inform the population and the doctors about those risks so in the future we may be able to avoid some of that. But by no means we will be able to change everything and to come up with a risk-free society because that doesn't exist. So what do we classify as an alcohol use disorder? An alcohol use disorder is basically classified by somebody who's losing control over their consumption. It is not classified by drinking X or Y or Z, any amount. The definition, the psychiatric definition of alcohol use disorders depends on a set of criteria which all have to do with control. And there are outer signs of that control. For example, when you need more and more drinks, meaning your tolerance for alcohol is uh, increasing. There are outer signs like people are showing symptoms if they don't have alcohol, if they're in a withdrawal state. There are outer signs that people take alcohol more important than their roles. There are psychological signs. In total, uh, there are 10 signs. And if you qualify for more than three of those signs, you would classify as a person with an alcohol use disorder. Okay, that's very important information, but I wonder, do people really want to know this? Or or a lot of patients are in denial about this as well, aren't they? You're right, yes. So what do you do about that? How do doctors deal with that denial? I think doctors are in the best situation to deal with that denial because a lot of doctors have established a relationship of trust with their patients. So it it is easier to tell a doctor than it is to sometimes admit that, for example, to a family member. But family members, of course, have 
other signs to see. But overall, it is a very difficult uh, problem and situation. And doctors are trained and by their practice are in the best situation, in the best uh, situation to actually make a change. That doesn't mean that they can make a change with everybody. It doesn't mean that they can break through denial every time, but they are in the best uh, situation there. All right. Well, clearly we all have a lot of work to do on this topic. So Dr. Rem, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Jurgen Rem, who's a senior scientist at Toronto's Centre for Addiction and Mental Health and was co-chair of the Guideline Writing Committee. These new guidelines are geared for healthcare professionals and how to have those sometimes difficult conversations with patients about alcohol consumption, about drinking. In fact, you might find that your doctor does ask about this now more often and you're wondering, where is this coming from? Well, it's because the healthcare system in general wants to talk more about alcohol use disorder. Therefore, they have to ask those questions and it is more important than ever to essentially be honest with your doctor about your alcohol consumption too. And you can see why that is. This is Mornings with Simi. Talking about pain management. Here's the thing. We know that there is a gender pain gap when it comes to healthcare. And that is that when there are studies done on pain and how it impacts the body and how we need to treat that, it has mainly been done on men. In the past, Uh, not a whole lot of surveys that are done on women to find out how women deal with the pain. There have been surveys done on this, uh, including the government's Women's Health Strategy Survey, that have tried to shed some more light on this issue, talking about how when women try to talk about their pain, and because it's different from the way perhaps that men process pain, that doctors also process that information differently. In fact, there was a Neurofin report that was done on this in 2023 that showed a bit of a concerning trend here. 11% more women than men felt that their pain was ignored or dismissed by their doctor. That compares to about 7% in 2022. Here's another one. Another survey revealed that 47% of women waited 11 months or more to receive a diagnosis for their pain compared to 66% of men. And additionally, over 12 months or longer, 14% of women found they didn't even get a diagnosis compared to 9% of men. So there is that gap there, but the difference in how men's pain get treated versus women's pain getting treated. So what does this mean? How do we how do we close that gap? Do we need to say more to our doctor? Do our doctors need to say more to us? Well, joining us is Dr. Michelle Griffin, the director of MFG Health Consulting and a women's health expert. Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Where is this disconnect happening, Dr. Griffin? Are are doctors processing the information differently? Are are women not saying enough about their pain? Like, what is going on? Yeah, I think it's happening on both sides, but I would say it's definitely happening more on the side of the healthcare professionals. I don't think it's intentional at all. I've been working as an OBGYN for well over a decade and I know myself and my colleagues aren't intentionally ignoring or dismissing women. However, when we look at the gender pain gap, 
a lot of the pain that women present with is misunderstood and therefore compared to pain in men, we don't recognize it and we often don't account it to the right actual diagnosis and so that leads to mistreatment. So how, how um, is it being misunderstood? Um, Because I think predominantly we're coming from a place where all of our research in life sciences and medicine is actually in men and it's in the male bodies. And we've just presumed all this time that what we see in men is exactly what we'll see in women. For example, chest pain linked to a heart attack. But in fact, it presents very differently in women. We get very different type of symptoms. And we don't recognize that. We're not taught about that in medical school. We're not trained with that um, to that during our time in hospitals and primary practice. And therefore, we are misunderstanding when women are coming in, whether it to be with their primary care physician or into ER talking about their pain, we don't fully understand it and we don't recognize it for what it actually is. And if you think that, you know, less than 30 years ago, we only just started, um, you know, the FDA in America only just started actually permitting women to be part of clinical trials so we could actually understand healthcare and the effect of drugs in women for the first time. So we've got a massive lack of understanding in this space. That is crazy that it took that long. What are the different ways in which then that women process pain versus men? Yeah, we still, this is still a big gap in our knowledge. Um, We don't fully understand the biological um, processes that are going on in women. We know that obviously that there is a significant biological something as simple as hormones, which is a massive area that we still don't fully understand. But it's not just what's happening on the biological, physical point. It's also what's happening emotionally, socially and psychologically. And we know that these factors have a significant impact on any person, whether they're a man or a woman, you know, looking at support network, what else is going on? what's happening in their lives, what other mental health conditions are they dealing with, that all has an interplay with the pain that somebody will feel, but also how they report it. And all of this is therefore makes it different when that woman goes into that doctor's office and talks about their pain. And then on the other side, as I say, you've got a doctor who's not aware there is that lack of understanding and knowledge there and all of that is coming together where we see this massive gap in how we're diagnosing and treating pain in women. Dr. Griffin, pain is such a personal thing too, isn't it? Whereas some people might Mm. just psychologically feel like, oh, I shouldn't complain too much. Therefore, they're not fully open about how much pain they're feeling. Definitely. And we, we've seen this when we've looked at studies across men and women with this, the same issue, um, slightly different to, inc- uh, to pain, but when we've looked at incontinence in men and women, and men have complained about it far more than women have. And when we've dug deeper into what's been going on, what we found is that women say, well, this is what's to be expected. And I think that comes, you know, that's the same for women experiencing pain. They expect to experience a lot of pain, whether it be throughout childbirth, whether it be during their periods, whether it would be in other situations. This is just the pain that we get on a regular monthly cycle or whenever we're going through this phase in life. And so 
what happens is, as you rightly say, when women go and speak to a doctor or they may not even get to speak to a doctor because in their minds and in society, we're saying this is to be expected. This is normal. And I think that there is a massive society societal barrier around saying we think it's normal and therefore you don't need to talk about it you don't need to report it and you definitely don't need any help for it and of course that's totally wrong I was thinking about even dealing with something like endometriosis even that today is still overcoming barriers isn't it Massively, massively. And I, and I really hope that we start to see a breakdown of the barriers. But on average, a woman who has endometriosis has actually gone through seven years of a diagnostic journey going from one doctor to another doctor, having one investigation followed by another investigation and basically being misdiagnosed and or And this is you know, something that's so significant, not only on that individual, but also on their family, their friends, their work, their career, everything that's going on now and also in later life. It absolutely takes over their life. And many people have such severe endometriosis that those women are not able to live what we would say is a normal life of getting up and doing a normal activity of going to school or going to work. They are unable to do that. But often when they report the pain as being so bad of saying, look, I've got to stay in bed. I can't get up. I can't eat with it. um, I can't move around with it. That gets dismissed. And that's really, you know, a great example of the gap that we have got to bridge. Lots of work for us to do. Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been great to speak to you. That's Dr. Michelle Griffin, Director of MFG Health Consulting and a women's health expert talking about the pain management gap between men and women in the healthcare system. Coming up next, we're going to hear all about the lost goal that has been found, but not claimed. We'll find out why not after the news. This is Mornings with Simi. What is the SS Pacific? Well, it's a shipwreck off the coast of BC from way back in 1875 that may have millions of dollars worth of gold on board, right? So why hasn't there been a huge rush to claim it and bring it up and find out what's going on? Well, that is where the problems start. We are going to get all the details on this fascinating story with the help of Jeff Hummel. Jeff is a director of the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance, helped discover the shipwreck. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. I'm glad to join you. First of all, what is the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance? Well, the project that we're working on uh, has a commercial aspect of it and sort of a nonprofit uh, aspect of it. The nonprofit... um, uh, will receive all of the um, non-cargo items uh, from the wreck. So our plan is to build a museum here in the Northwest uh, dedicated um, partially to this particular ship. And um, so we have two different you know, in organizations, Rockfish, which is the commercial side of the project, and then Northwest Shipwreck Alliance, which is the um, nonprofit. Right. So what do we know about the SS Pacific? Well, the SS Pacific is the worst maritime disaster on the west coast of North America. Um, the ship left November 4th, 1875, headed for San Francisco. Uh, there were a lot of um, local, you know, wealthy people on board headed, you know, down to San Francisco to catch the rail line to the east coast, uh, as well as a lot of gold miners that were on board. Uh, the ship left at about 9 in the morning, and by about 9.30, uh, the same day in the evening, uh, it had sunk and um, 
the great loss of life. That's terrible. So what do we know about what was on board? Well, there's a lot of um, extant records. Um, there's uh, what we call the express cargo, which was being shipped by Wells Fargo Express out of Victoria. Uh, and it consisted of gold that belonged to mostly merchants uh, that was being shipped uh, south to San Francisco and then um, to the Mint or to New York. So is that all still down there? It is. Somewhere on board the ship uh, is a, this consignment of gold. So what's going to happen to it? Why hasn't it been brought up by now? Well, um, the ship turned out to be incredibly difficult to locate. Um, I've been involved in searching for the ship kind of on and off for about 30 years. Uh, it's been a you know, hobby of mine and a profession of mine. Um, I always kept my day job, but uh, it was something that I've you know, pursued with uh, great interest and um, extremely difficult to find a number of other groups you know, spent millions of dollars uh, searching for the ship, but eventually we prevailed. That must have been quite the exciting day when you found that. Yeah, you know, people always talk about, well, what was it like the moment that you found the ship? And it, I, the way I describe it is more of a dull realization. Uh, the ship does not present itself on the bottom the way that a traditional shipwreck would. And so it took, uh, even though we had found this anomaly on the bottom, it took us a while to convince ourselves that this actually was our ship. But eventually we did. Okay, so what's the problem now then? I mean, who's entitled to that cargo? Is it just whoever finds it? Well, yes and no. Um, when you find a shipwreck like this, um, the salver, the person who you know, was a rockfish, our commercial entity, uh, is entitled to um, be rewarded for the efforts that they put into finding it. Uh, but then there's the question of ownership. So it's kind of like the whole process, I would um, sort of equate it to probate, which is something people might be more familiar with. You have this event that took place, the shipwreck sank, and then claimants can come forward and say, okay, well, you know, I actually had this cargo on board and that cargo on board. And they have to be able to present proof that they actually had it. It can't just be hearsay. It has to be something they would hold up in court. And then from that, they can make a claim. But the salver, the person who put the effort into finding it and recovering it and bring it back uh, to the commercial market is entitled to a salvage award. So let's say that you know someone had a hundred dollars on board. The salver is entitled to let's say ninety-two percent or something like that. So a large portion of what was on board, but the original claimant is entitled to some portion of what they had. Okay, so w- is that where the breakdown is here? Like, who could possibly be the original claimant of a ship from hundred and fifty years ago? Well, that's really interesting. Um, we have just uh, entered into a settlement agreement with the underwriters of the cargo. So the um, cargo was shipped by Wells Fargo, but it was insured by um, five different insurance companies that are represented uh, by insurance uh, companies in London today. And uh, about a month ago, we entered into an agreement with them uh, with an understanding of, you know, who gets what. Okay. So does that mean that you can start going down there and bringing up the gold? Yeah, um, the process uh, never actually prevented us from uh, moving forward. It was more of, again, determining who owned it. So we've had the ability to go out and recover the cargo uh, the entire time since we were originally awarded uh, exclusive salvage rights um, in November of last year. The challenge is that uh, the wreck is in deep water. Uh, it's between 1,000 and 2,000 feet you know, below the surface. Um, it is spread out over a large area. And portions of it, um, you know, need to be excavated. So um, 
you know, we've been spending a great deal of time gathering an understanding of exactly how the ship uh, was constructed. We've had to learn, you know, how these types of vessels were, were built. The type of vessel, it was a sidewheel steamer, which meant it had a, a big steam engine in the middle, but it had paddles on the side of the vessel that propelled it forward. These were kind of like the 747 of their era. There were probably about 200 of them built. And so we spent a great deal of time, you know, under, trying to get, gather an understanding with limited information about where the cargo is on board the vessel. And fortunately, a few other vessels like this have been uh, recovered. Uh, there's been about five, or ours is the fifth, rather. Um, so we've been able to learn from what, what other people have done as well. Jeff, what a fascinating line of work you have. Like, how, how did you get into this? And honestly, how many shipwrecks have you found? Well, um, I've you know, been highly focused on this particular wreck, but I got into this when I was um, fairly young. Uh, when I was in college um, attending the University of Washington, um, I was aware that there were World War II airplanes that had been sunk in Lake Washington, which is right near Seattle. And I salvaged one of those airplanes and then was promptly sued by the federal government uh, because they claimed that they still owned it. So at the age of 19, I salvaged it. At the age of 20, I was in federal court defending my, myself against wow. the federal government. We uh, won clear and free title to the airplane, and I just visited the airplane uh, about two months ago. Uh, it's in Colorado. It's been restored to flying condition. But that process, you know, it's like, well, okay, that was an interesting thing. Here's an airplane. You know, what sort of shipwrecks are in the Northwest? And so, again, I kept my day job. I worked in computer industry and um, just always, you know, kept pursuing this. It's, you know, a, a pretty involved um, pursuit. You know, we I ended up buying an 80-foot research vessel and all sorts of equipment and brought on a big team of people, you know, to help out. We've got about 30 people on our team. Um, so it's, it's a big project. No kidding. It's a big project. Do, do you just have to keep looking for mysteries to solve, shipwrecks to find? Like, how do you find them? You know, it all starts um, uh, in the archives, um, in the history books. You know, you learn about these different accounts of things that happened a long time ago. You're like, well, here's, you know, here's a shipwreck. Here's this, here's this thing that happened. And I wonder, you know, what would be left of that? How hard would it be to find it? And so we definitely, through the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance, have a number of other really incredible um, projects that we're planning on doing here in the Northwest. And there's there's some really, you know, incredible bits of history that are just laying out there on the bottom, you know, undisturbed for, um, you know, almost centuries. Wow. So you have no shortage of other projects that you could pursue, other shipwrecks to go and look at. Well, as long as my wife keeps supporting my um, my pursuits, <laughs> yes, uh, it's uh, it's all encompassing, and uh, you know, it's uh, can take up a lot of your life. But yeah, we absolutely are putting together this team that uh, plans to go out and do additional projects, not only locally but you know nationally and internationally. That is so cool. Okay, so when does work get underway then on the SS Pacific? Well, work is underway right now. So um, we design and build our own robotics equipment. Um, and so we're in the process of building, you know, specialized equipment to recover the artifacts, you know, from the ship. Um, there's two sort of distinct areas. There's the hull of the ship, uh, which, you know, represents certain challenges. And then there's the debris field. So um, this fall, we went out and mapped uh, the entire uh, debris field, which is quite extensive. Um, it's about 2,000 meters long. Uh, we identified, you know, several hundred, you know, major objects in the debris field. And our plan is to go back with the robotics equipment and, you know, uh, from the artifacts that we find, 
get even a better understanding of how the ship, you know, sort of came apart at the surface. You know, it's, it's a fascinating story. The One of the things that we found when we originally, you know, got some debris from the wreck to do the legal part of the arrest in the federal court was you have to bring up an artifact. And one of the artifacts that we found was a fire brick. And it's from inside the boiler. And so not only did the ship sink due to a collision, but there was also an explosion on board the vessel. And that ties into, like, you know, where the gold is on the ship and where the people were and all that right. sort of stuff. And so gathering this incredible understanding of an event, you know, that well, there's very limited information. There were only two survivors of the, you know, four to 500 people that were on board. And so we have their statements plus, again, an analysis of what the ship looks like. And from all that, we're, you know, we're gathering the story and, and plan to bring back a lot of artifacts. What a cool job. Jeff, thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time. Good luck. That's Jeff Hummel, director of the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance. They discovered the shipwreck of the SS Pacific and work is now underway to start that excavation.